Hi everyone, I'm transporting myself from my kitchen to a world of delectable food cultures and this is one incredible journey you want to accompany me on. I'm Alicia. I love baking and I knew food was going to be a huge part of my life since I was seven. A lot of you may have seen what I'm up to in my kitchen, but I want to give you a glimpse into my love for exploring the world of pastry through new cultures. So, on my podcast, I want to sit down with chefs, restaurateurs, entrepreneurs and food lovers who took up the challenge of bringing the world's cuisine to India. Join me as I learn more about Food From Here and There. On this episode of Food From Here and There, we're being transported to Japan with Lakhan Jaitani and Nikhil Menon of Mizu Izakaya. A childhood fascination with all things Japan inspired Lakhan Jaitani to learn about Japanese cuisine and go on to open Mumbai's first izakaya. Mizu's head pastry chef Nikhil combines classic pastry techniques with Japanese flavors to create an incredible dessert menu. They both talk about taking Japanese food beyond sushi and sashimi, fusion flavors and techniques, and what an izakaya actually is. Hi guys, welcome to another episode and our last episode in this season of Food From Here and There. So today I'm joined with not one, but two very special guests from the one and only Mizu restaurant here in Mumbai and Kaur. And I'm joined with Lakhan Jaitani and Nikhil Manin over here, head chef and pastry chef from Mizu. And I'm so excited to talk to both of you about how you brought authentic Japanese cuisine here to Mumbai and here to India. So thank you so, so much for joining me here today. For sure. We're glad to be here. Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Of course. I think the best way to do this would just be to dive right into the first question that I have. Just giving our listeners a brief sort of overall view of what Mizu is. So with Mizu, you've introduced India to a very different kind of Japanese food and more of an experience rather. And it sets you apart from restaurants that serve typically, you know, sushi and sashimi. So could you guys tell us more about what an izakaya is and if I'm even pronouncing it correctly and why you chose to create this experience more than just a commonly found one? Yes, so the entire idea for Mizu actually constructed around one uh, small objective which was to make Japanese food more fun and more accessible in the city. You know, I went and I trained in Japan and the perception of Japanese food, which was over here previously, and what we wanted to bring on the table was very different. The market here always thought it was only about sashimi, sushi, but there is a lot more. The entire culture is in fact based on a lot more things, just like Indian cuisine, where we as Indians have always been mistook of having only butter chicken and butter naan on our menu. <laughs> It is the same way for the Japanese, right? Yeah. So the idea was to get a more relaxed approach to the city, a more fun approach, a more accessible approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, izakaya typically means dining and a drinking space. It is a space where people would generally go after work to catch up on conversations, to just have some sake, to mm-hmm. wind down. This is exactly what we want Mizu to be. We want Mizu to be approachable. And I think that is why people like us because we're not uptight and Mm -hmm. we are yet very conscious, just like the Japanese, about what we serve, how we serve, what our food is about. It 
really matters to us. Food is the number one priority, but you should feel welcome. You should feel at home. That was the whole idea. So mizu is basically water. So the whole ideology yeah. of mizu is flow like water or attain any shape or adapt to whatever is around you. Of course. So that is what he said that we made things fun and more accessible. So we try to incorporate that adaptability with the local ingredients and incorporating Japanese techniques. So that is what mizu is all about and it has been like that from the very beginning. I love that. Wow, thank you guys so much. And one thing that I love about mizu is that it highlights the local Indian ingredients that complement Japanese ingredients and Japanese style dishes that you have on the menu. For example, your hamachi served with garam masala, smoked ponzu sauce, and the pork gyozas with naga chili, and you know, the fermented cabbage as well. So, how do you as, you know, head chef and head pastry chef determine which native indian ingredients go best with japanese cuisine and japanese authenticity the philosophy is to work with what is around us i'll tell you how this came about to be yeah. uh, there's a dish on our menu which was initially called the salmon yuzu truffle mm-hmm. yuzu is a lime it's similar to a lime or a lemon it has a very distinct flavor and a very distinct taste mm. also very distinct smell to it you uh, know yeah now at some point we couldn't kind of source this ingredient you know because mm. it was not available and covid had made things really difficult mm. so came about to be like okay so why can't we use a fruit from an indian lime family or a indian lemon family which was as fragrant and as different in its flavor profile than the yuzu mm, yeah. so we decided to use gondaraj ah. which is the king of limes from yeah. our country so the idea is to select things that is in our season process them the way the japanese could actually process them and kind of showcase it on our menu it of is course. not to bastardize two cuisines it is not to do a butter chicken with a japanese <laughs> stock but it is very carefully selected ingredients so another example of this would be i would pass this thing on to chef nikhil as well is our mango kakigori so basically mango kakigori is like a dessert which is had in the summer basically it's a shaved ice which is flavored with a lot of seasonal fruits or toppings which they make so essentially it's basically the japanese version of the indian gola but in a very accentuated way where the ice which is made for the shaved ice is taken care of the ingredients which are used are in season so one of the ingredients in that kakiguri itself is something called as anko Mm-hmm. which is like a very traditional japanese filling which is made with azuki beans okay. so here the two things which play a point is observation and accessibility so the observation was they were using some kind of legume so we tried using our accessible legume which was rajma but oh. small rajmas wow. so basically it's like an indian halwa which mm-hmm. the japanese make but then we used our indian beans to make that thing so we incorporated these things within the kakigori itself so some amount of addition to the kakigori was the koshian paste but we made it not did the azuki beans but the small rajma beans so the japanese would generally do their kakigoris which is mm-hmm. their shaved ice in 
the summer season. Yeah. And they would use fruits like they were for use strawberries, which are white strawberries mm, yeah. or golden peaches. Yeah. They're like really, really good fruits, right? Our mango, you know, the ones which we consume here in India, the mm. Alfonso mangoes. It is so nice that it just perfectly fits the kakigori, you know. Yeah. And we've served that kakigori to a few Japanese people who have uh, come to the restaurant really? and they've been blown away. Yeah. Oh my God. And it yeah. must be so nice for you to get that sort of response yeah. from someone that's been Correct. living in Japan and has tried the original and then Correct. tried what you've done and how you've gotten yeah. like such a good response from that as well. So the idea was to use a good fruit which is in season mm-hmm. and kind of recreate that experience without having to actually get a fruit from there, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah, of course. And do you think that even if, you know, the white peaches and the white strawberries, like you mentioned, were available here, do you think you'd be able to sort of think of, oh, maybe I should try using the Alfonso mango because, you know, your thought process is more innovative or do you think you would have stuck to the original? No, I think uh, as a cook, our philosophy should be to utilize our geography the most. Mm. Taking into consideration that restaurants are one of the most uh, waste-producing industries, yeah. it is also our duty to kind of look at the future and kind of see how we can solve this. Of course. Being more sustainable with things as well. <laughs> Me and Nikhil were actually talking about the matcha misu that you guys serve yeah. at Mizu. Mm-hmm. And I've heard about the matcha misu before as well. And I was just thinking and I was just wondering, how do you strike that balance in terms of Asian techniques, you know, using those sort of culinary techniques from across the world and combining them with the similar flavors and striking a balance between that classic sort of pastry technique and the Asian twist that you have to it? So there are two styles of pastry, which is evident in Japan. Mm. The traditional style is called Bagashi style. And the more modern style is called the Yogashi style. So basically what the Japanese have done, they have taken the Western techniques and they have applied to their ingredients. And you can see this very evident in Japan where the matcha misu has taken up, the fluffy pancakes have taken up. So basically they have taken whatever was there in the East. They have made it their own. So that is where the idea came from. So we just have to, I'm not saying reinvent, but take inspiration from what the Yogashi cuisine is Mm -hmm. and then apply the techniques which you've already done throughout your career and then apply it to Japanese ingredients. So that made a lot of sense given the theme of the restaurant. Yeah, and I know that Mizu also does an amazing range of cakes that you can order and you can take away. You know, you have the hazelnut cacao, you have the Japanese cotton cheesecake, matcha mochi and the sakura cake as well. And cakes are such an important part of celebrations. So what, <laughs> so what inspired both of you to think beyond just Mizu and the restaurant and think of having this beautiful range of cakes that people can order for their celebrations as well? I would say my partner Vedant Malik also has a role to play in this. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, in fact, just wanted a way to kind of bring the Mizu celebratory experience home, Mm -hmm. right? So a couple of times we asked on my partner's birthday or even on my birthday, Chef Nikhil uh, took the initiative of surprising us with a really cool cake, you know. Wow. My partner ate it and he's like, uh, bro, we should be uh, packing this and selling this. Yeah. And I just got onto the bang wagon and the idea was that he had created such beautiful uh, desserts 
was to kind of take them, blow them up in size and make them available in a celebratory version for you to enjoy at home. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And how did the sort of dessert team, Nikhil, adapt to that and sort of come on board once again with all the cakes and think of the flavors? And because, you know, it's probably very different from creating just one birthday cake for your team member versus creating a whole line of them to sell. Yeah, we're working on that. So initially it started with the desserts being like blown up into cakes. Mm -hmm. So the dessert version was uh, made into a cake. Yeah. But then we wanted to do something more. So the layered cake like uh, matcha mochi came about. Then we started doing roll cakes. So that also took well. So the thing with roll cakes is it depends on the seasonal fruit. Yeah. So if you have that seasonal fruit with you you can work and you can have various flavors along with that for that cake so right now we are working on a few more cakes which is not in the desert line as such okay. i've tried some roll cakes in japan and chef nikhil are they better i'm telling you yeah. <laughs> okay chef nikhil you have to give us a small hint of what some of the cakes that are coming up are going to be Chestnuts are a big thing in Japan. Mm-hmm. So we are thinking something related to chestnut, like uh, maybe a mombla or something oh, like wow. that on those lines. We want to source the chestnuts from the Himalayan region. Amazing. So that also we are looking like the local ingredients, maybe yeah. even source other fruits from the north of India. Oh, wow. Okay, I'm looking forward to seeing it when it comes out. And Mizu's menu has a lot of fusion as well, like we've already established, with regards to both savory dishes and sweet dishes. So what are some pieces of advice? So what are some very important things to keep in mind while trying to mesh flavors together or trying to blend different flavors together? Oh, tough one. (laughs) (laughs) I think there have been dishes which I have been testing for over two and a half years now which have not yet made it to the menu. No way. And I yet keep testing them every like two or three months. So my philosophy is a lot to do with uh, trial and error. Mm. Sometimes you don't know what is going to work together till you don't try it. Failure is more important uh, than hitting success. I don't think I have ever hit a recipe that I have been fond of within Three months also. Really? Yes. It really takes a while then. You know, but again, this is from person to person, right? Yeah, of course. I know of chefs, really good chefs in India, Mm -hmm. who are able to change their menu seasonally with such finesse, Mm. you know, which really surprises me. (laughs) So I guess it's just we are different as chefs. And also what we are trying to do here is a bit unique. When we started this, there was no one possibly in India or the world who had thought of trying to take Indian ingredients and put them together with Japanese ingredients. It takes time to kind of make sure it all plays in harmony. Got it. And what about you, Nikhil? Well, I think definitely trying it out is much more important. And also, as chefs, we sometimes get lost in the process of making something new and we try a lot Well, in fact, if you just mix two ingredients and try it out, it might be better than what you have just done. So the important thing is not to get lost in the process, but to try out and always think that the flavor is the king. So whatever you do, whatever techniques you apply, you just have to taste good. That's all. Exactly. Yeah. 
And Lakan, I've read that you've been inspired by all things Japan since a teenager, <laughs> yeah. um, including anime and manga. And you recently worked with Studio Mobius to create a beautiful anime-style yeah. short film on Shawan Mushi, yeah. which is a classic Japanese egg custard. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit more about that specific project and what inspired it? For sure. So when me and Chef Nikhil actually decided to do Chavan Munshi four years ago. We kind of co-created the whole uh, thing where we had some ingredients, we knew what technique had to be applied, you know. And when we started serving it, I had a lot of guests initially, which is almost like four, four and a half years back, mm -hmm. come to me and be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> we don't know what you're serving, you know. This is not Japanese food. Yeah. And I was like, okay, because we were the ones who had to break that barrier to exactly. what Japanese food was yeah. perceived in this country, right? Mm -hmm. Eventually, it grew so much on people that uh, personalities like V. Sangvi wrote about it. A lot of other chefs came in trying that and started posting about it and they really liked it, right? Because flavor is king and today... You're asking me about Chavan Munshi. So it exactly. just, I guess, goes to say you have to stick to your gut, to what you want to do, to what you want to showcase. Yeah, It's a very simple, humble, like custard. Normally, a sweeter version of something like a Chavan Munshi would be like a sweet custard. Like, yeah. a, like a, a sweet tofu set tofu. Yeah, just being able to do... Also, what I really wanted to do, having that connection with my business partner, we're like childhood friends and we've always had a dream to do something together. Mm -hmm. Being able was a big thing for me and I think that was an opportunity for me to be able to do what I really wanted to do and I'm glad that it all worked out actually. Amazing. And going back to your training in Japan and your beginnings of Food Lakan, mm -hmm. your love for Japan took you to the country in 2017, mm -hmm. um, where you spent a few months training at cooking school in Tokyo. First, I did a cooking school. And then post that, I was working with this restaurant called Sugo. Yeah. The head chef of Sugo, his name is Chef Daisuke Nomura. His father owns a restaurant which is called Diego which is a two Michelin star restaurant. Mm. So my mentor, Chef Daisuke, was the head chef of Diego for 10 years. Wow. And then he wanted to do something a bit more accessible. So he started Sugo. Sugo is where I did my internship at. Very lucky to be having a mentor like that, mm -hmm. you know, help me understand what Japanese food is actually all about. It yeah. is essentially an expression of what is around you and the season you are in. What is something about Japanese food culture that you both think sets it apart from the world? I think it's just the simplicity of what they do with their food. Mm -hmm. So they don't try to over-process anything. And they let the original ingredient taste shine out, even if it's a very minimal process they apply. Yeah. And they do this very efficiently. And they have a lot of respect towards the ingredients, how they treat the ingredients, how they harvest the ingredients. So that is what I respect a lot about how Japanese approach their food culture. Mm -hmm. And it has to do also with the spiritual nature which they have within. So they consider it a gift from nature. 
itself. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they revere it as if it's like a offering from a god. So that is the amount of respect the Japanese give to their food. Yeah. So this is more, you know, hundred mm-hmm. percent. They really stick to that thought. They're extremely mindful of everything of how they bring about their plates. Mm-hmm. And as Chef Nikhil said, they don't want ingredients to hide over heaps and heaps of flavor. They want ingredients in all its natural form to shine. And I think making a dish simple, not hiding behind layers and layers and layers of things on one plate is way more difficult to create than anything else. What you see is what you get. Amazing. And Nikhil, you are also a food scientist as well as a pastry chef. So how did you get into food science and how has your background in food science sort of influenced your journey in pastry and in the whole sort of world of dessert? I graduated and uh, got into a five-star chain, the Taj. So I was with them in my former years Mm -hmm. and that's where the basic came along. So I specialized in pastry and bakery when I was with Taj. At a point of time, you come to realize that whatever you're doing is actually working with chemistry. When it comes to pastry and baking, it's a science. So I wanted to expand that knowledge. So I decided that after seven or eight years of work, I decided to do a food science course. So I had to travel to Malaysia to do this. So I did something called as culinology. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's an amalgamation of food science, food technology and culinary arts. So I brought in a lot of culinary arts into food science. Then I realized what ingredients do and when they come together, how one ingredient has an influence over the other. So when you are equipped with that knowledge, you tend to formulate the recipes and tend to understand your ingredients a lot better and uh, you can kind of predict the outcome of whatever you're doing before baking or before cooking or anything like that so i must say i'm like a food geek and also i am close to nature so he's also a permaculturist the knowledge of how ingredients work together brings in a lot of change in how you cook, how you look at uh, your recipes and how you formulate them. Yeah. So that has helped a lot. Yeah, Of course. Amazing. And both of you are very passionate about sustainable food practices and making sure that everything you're doing is ethical and like Nikhil mentioned, connected to nature. And you've collaborated with initiatives such as the Wild Food Project Lakhan and Green and Brown Farms for Nikhil. So how are ways in which everyone can be more sustainable when it comes to food? And how are ways in which you've implemented your knowledge and sustainability into cooking at Misu? Here's the thing, right? Being a Japanese restaurant in India, you will be flying down certain ingredients from Japan. So technically you are adding to carbon credits or you are adding to the cycle a little bit. Every restaurant is, how can we make ourselves better after knowing the fact that, okay, if we are adding to the environment in a harmful way, yet there are thousand other ways that you could apply onto a restaurant or do inside a restaurant to actually reduce this footprint that you have kind of created. For one, we are at every given day trying to use all our fish, meat, vegetables from head to toe, from bottom to top. So 
even if we are importing something, making sure that we are using 100% of that product. Exactly. Making sure that we are recreating from our waste. So one of the tasks in our restaurant is every month, a couple of our chefs will open the wastage book, see the wastage for the entire month wow. and try to create a recipe out of that. So mm. one such thing which one of my chefs, Chef Kripasha, kind of created was the bar was using a lot of fresh watermelon juice for one of their cocktails. Mm. And for garnish, they just needed a little bit of the skin, not a lot. Yeah. And we were wasting a lot of watermelon skin. So we decided to kind of sous vide that skin, wow. smoke it, no cut way. it into small cubes and add it into one of our tartare dishes. Amazing. You know? So we kind of upcycled this thing that which was kind of going to waste. Yeah. My point being... Whoever you are in whatever category that you are working in, whether it's being an Indian restaurant or a Japanese restaurant, you do have ways that you can kind of reduce your footprint and have sustainable practices, even though you might be getting some stuff from a different country. No, and that's so interesting to hear that, you know, how you're making use of absolutely everything whether it be the fish or it be watermelon yeah. or pretty much anything and making the most of what you have i'm also a farmer so we have a farm in hyderabad i'm a permaculture designer so wow. this season i am trying to grow something called as komatsuna mm -hmm. which is like a japanese mustard and even have got uh, seeds of aduki bean so wow. the red moong dal we are trying to grow some ingredients here at our farm right. and also at some point of time we are also looking to convert whatever waste we are producing at the restaurant into a compost and maybe have like a kitchen garden system going on wow. which we require like certain herbs like Simple maybe herbs. mitsuna wow. if we can kind of do our own cycle yeah. Definitely, we are moving Amazing. in direction yeah. of having a small herb garden yeah. with yeah. our own compost eventually. And that's amazing. You know, just being more mindful of the future of food as well is so important. And on that note, I'm going to ask you guys my last question. And this is a question that I ask all of my guests that come on food from here and there. So this question is to both of you. If you could pick any one dish, whether it be sweet or savory, from Japan or any part of the world that you might think our guests would like to try or our audience would like to try, what do you think that that would be? It's the golden peach fruit sando from Chikiten in Japan, in Nakameguro. I did not expect it to be what it was, but yeah. that peach, it doesn't leave my head, you was know? It? Yeah. Next time I go to Japan, I will be trying it. <laughs> and what about you, Nika? I recently was in Hyderabad, so I tasted that sweet, which is my favorite from Hyderabad region. Yeah. So it's a very local thing called as the putre kolu. Okay. Basically, it's like a rice paper, which they make onto earthenware pots, which mm -hmm. are upside down. And they make very thin rice papers. They coat it with ghee, jaggery powder mm -hmm. and a lot of nuts. So basically, you have to eat the paper and the sweet. So the paper melts in your mouth. So it's that thin. And it has got an amazing technique. It has got a lot of history to it. So people who don't know Butrekulu should go give it a try. For sure. And I think I'm a bit closer to Hyderabad than I am to Japan. <laughs> so I think that's going to be first on my list. And then the peach fruit sandal. <laughs> 
thank you guys so much for coming lakhan and nikhil for speaking to me on food from here and there and this also wraps up my first season of the show congratulations <laughs> thank you for being such great guests and answering all of my questions in so much detail thank you for having us thank you for having us yeah. that was lakhan jaithani and nikhil manan from mizu isakaya on food from here and there Head to the episode description to follow them on social media. And of course, come say hi and follow me on Instagram at Ali the Baker to see my latest adventures in the kitchen.